We pray that you may give us a deep, sincere understanding, a willingness to hear your word, to understand it as it is, and for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, so that we may ever be right before you because of the death of Jesus Christ. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, over the years, um, unfortunately, we've been missing my dad, celebrating my dad's uh, birthday. And... um, so I asked my dad the other day, I said, uh, isn't it a problem that, you know, every year we keep forgetting your birthday or, you know, like we keep forgetting it just before or just on the day itself? And he says, not really, he doesn't mind at all because when you come to his age, uh, you don't really celebrate birthdays anymore. Uh, he said that uh, as you get to a certain age, one year is like the next. And I think that's probably true. I mean, I'm not sure. Maybe I've come to that stage where I don't really celebrate my birthday anymore. But it comes to a stage where one birthday seems to be like the next, and one year seems to be like another. And I think that that seems to be the case as well when it comes to New Year's. It's like, you know, one year comes and another year goes. So 2012 is finishing and 2013 is beginning. But does it really matter? Uh, Is it something that is a big deal? Well, I think that from a worldly way of looking at it, not really, isn't it? Uh, I know that as a Christian, uh, I've been to some churches and they make a big deal about, okay, next year we're going to have the year of prayer, or next year we're going to have the year of evangelism, or next year we're going to have the year of memorizing the Bible. But sometimes it seems all a bit contrived and a bit artificial. Like what makes one year different from another year? Isn't every year a year where we should, which we should pray, or another year the same way we should do evangelism? But I think that as we look at today's passage, I want to sort of bring us back to the reality of God and of Jesus, and of time, to see how we should see uh, the end of the year, and how that should really affect us, and whether it should affect us. Now today, we're looking at chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, and we actually haven't studied it yet as a church. I realized as I went through our preaching plan. And uh, I'm sure that uh, if you've ever been a Christian for a while, you would have heard uh, preaching from chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. uh, Because that's the main passage where a lot of churches preach on the importance of us being humble, being servant-minded and being sacrificial and following the example of Jesus. But 6 to 11 uh, seems to always focus on verse 6 to verse 8. And uh, verse 9 to 11 always seems to get missed out. So let me read to you verse 6 to 11. You can see that actually there's a progression in terms of the thinking in the book of Philippians. So in verse 6 it says, Who by very nature... Sorry, in verse 5 we'll begin. In your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So if you look at your Bible carefully, you'll see that in verse 6 to 8, it's all about what Jesus does, what Jesus has done. That Jesus, though he was God, he humbled himself, became a servant, and he died on the cross. But in verse 9 to 11, the whole uh, subject changes. It's not Jesus anymore, it's God and what God does to or for Jesus. 
So in verse 9, God does something to Jesus after Jesus has gone to the cross. And what does he do? In verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place. That means visually and metaphorically we see that Jesus has been raised up to the same level as God. He is God. He is at the same level of God so that people will look up to him. It says there, the, the, the next uh, part of uh, verse 9, and God gave him the name that it is above every name. Now what name is that? Uh, we already know Jesus is given the name Jesus. But what name is given to Jesus that is a name above every other name? Well, I think the answer comes in verse 11. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is equivalent to God. Because in the Old Testament, God was seen as the Lord God. So what God has actually done is that he's raised up Jesus to the highest place. He's given him the name which was, you know, before that reserved only for himself. And it means that all power and glory and authority and splendor have been given to Jesus from God the Father. Now that's really important for us to remember. And I think it's really timely because we've come to uh, the new year and we just finished looking at Christmas. We just finished Christmas. And Christmas is a time where people remember Jesus. But how do they remember Jesus during Christmas? They always remember the baby Jesus. But people forget, how long was Jesus a baby for? Uh, he was probably ba- only a baby for about uh, six months, right? Because that's how long children usually are babies for. And Jesus doesn't miraculously, year after year, for 2,000 years after that, continue to be a baby. Jesus is not a baby anymore. Jesus has grown up and he will never become a baby again. So where is Jesus today and what is Jesus today? He is with God at the highest place with God. He's given the name of Lord. And what is he? He is no longer a baby. He is God. And that is the present. But look at verse 10. Because in verse 10, I think it looks forward to the future, right? So this is the position of Jesus now. He is at the highest place. He is the name above all names. But in verse 10 to 11, I think he's looking forward to the future of what's going to happen. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what does it mean that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth? Uh, it basically means the whole sum of created beings, I suppose, of people who, uh, of, of all I, I, people who can worship Jesus. So heaven represents all the angels and heavenly and angelic beings. Earth represents all the living human beings. Under the earth represents all the dead, those who are buried and I suppose cremated. So when you say, when, when, when the Bible says here heaven, earth and under the earth, it means the whole of humanity, the whole of the angelic beings, the whole of the dead and living, they will all bow down and worship Jesus. At the same time, it says there that every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. So I think this is looking forward to the future because we don't see that today. We don't see that the whole world bows down and worships Jesus and gives him glory with their tongues. So we're looking forward to the future here and it it gives us a picture that in the future that one day when Jesus comes again, the whole world will acknowledge that Jesus is God and that he deserves to be worshipped. 
and it deserves your devotion. So, if we keep that in mind, because that is what the reality and the truth is all about, that Jesus is God, He's in heaven now, and that future is going to come where the whole world, dead and living, those in heaven and earth and under the earth, they will all worship Jesus. Then as we come to the end of 2012, what should be on our minds? What should we be mindful of? Well, should we be mindful of high COE prices? Should we be mindful of uh, Michael Palmer? Right? Should we be mindful of the US fiscal cliff? Or should we be mindful of the year-end sale? Now, these are not the things that we should be mindful of. We should be mindful of the reality of where Jesus is and what is going to happen in the future. The splendor and glory of Jesus and also that he will come again and when he comes again, everything and everybody will worship Jesus. Now, if that's the case, we then can move on to verse 12 and see what the consequences of this reality and truth is. Okay, if the splendor of Jesus is such that he is God and he will come again and the whole of, of the created world uh, will worship him, then how should we respond as Christians? Well, in verse 12 it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there's a main verb here. The main verb is found in the word work. Work. And this word work here is an imperative, a commandment, an instruction. It's not a suggestion. It's not advice. It is something that they must do. So the Philippian Christians are told that they must continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, a few questions come to our mind, isn't it? Uh, The first question is, what does it mean to work out their salvation? We know that it's linked to the idea of obedience, right? Because they, they continue to obey, you've always obeyed, but now that I'm not there, continue to obey and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, because Jesus is in this splendor, he's God and he's coming again, you must continue to obey God and be totally devoted to Jesus. But when when it says work out your salvation, it's a bit confusing. Does it mean that uh, we are not saved yet? That we must do good works to be saved? That we, uh, we must do something in order to please God and be saved? No, I don't think so, right? Because the word there in verse 12 is therefore, which brings us back to, the, to, to what it says in verse 6 to 8, that Jesus has already died to give us salvation. So as, as people who have been saved by the death of Jesus, we do not work towards our salvation or earn our salvation, but other, rather what it's really saying here is we are to, to live out our salvation. We are to, 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 do, to do the outworking of our salvation state. Now, I think that this is really important because it tells us that as we live as Christians today, we have been saved for a reason. We have to live out our salvation. We must keep obeying uh, obeying Jesus. Now, it goes on to say in verse 13 that we do not work and grit our teeth on our own and say, okay, I'm going to work really hard here to obey Jesus. But rather, it says in verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. So we do not struggle 
to work out our salvation our own, but God works within us to help us to obey Jesus. Now, I know this all seems very heavy, especially at the end of the year. Maybe your brain is a bit shut down. But I think that this is so important for us, isn't it? Because as we enter a new year, as we enter the old year, life for us doesn't change. Uh, we must continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the first thing that comes to mind when I look at this in terms of application is, Christian life, Christian living, is a hard life. It's a hard life. You know, the word here, work, literally means physical labor. Hard physical labor. You know, you see the people working under the hot sun, repairing the road. That's the sort of idea that it has when it says, work out your salvation. It means that the Christian life, obedience to God is difficult because obedience doesn't come naturally to us. We must, we must struggle. Every day is a struggle. Every day is a battle. Every day, you must put in effort to want to obey God because naturally we want to do things easy. So just a few days ago in Christmas time, uh, we were listening to uh, Christmas music at my relative's house and it all happened to be downloaded illegally. So uh, a Christian relative of mine asked, uh, asked someone, say, hey, can you do that for me? Could you, uh, could you, could you load up uh, the, you know, my... Uh, uh, how do you do that? You know, he's explaining. Okay, can you load up my thumb drive of all these illegal uh, songs so that I can do the same thing? And I and I and I was saying to this Christian relative, I said, you shouldn't do that. You know, it's illegal and it wouldn't please God. And he said, oh, but then you know, um, his words exactly to me were, uh, I want to do it because it makes life easy for me. Now, you know, I've got to go and buy all the CDs. I've got to go and you know legally buy. You know. Doesn't God want to make life easy for me? Actually, when you look at this passage, the answer is no. God doesn't want to make life easy for you. He wants you to obey. He wants you to work out your salvation of fear and trembling. So, at the end of the year, as we move to a new year, the challenge for us is, are we going to work and, and, and put effort and sweat and toil in actually obeying God and doing what pleases Him? to work out the outworking of the salvation in our lives, in our actions. The second thing is, you notice he, if you look in this passage very carefully, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but there are no qualifications or limitations in how we work out our salvation. It doesn't say, oh, you should only work out your salvation on a Sunday, or you should work out your salvation only at church, or work out your salvation only with Christians. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let's think of the context again, okay? Because the context of the letter written to the church in Philippi was that they were undergoing huge persecution. Paul himself, if you turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 7, if you have your Bibles, turn me back to chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains, or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you can share in God's grace for me, with me, sorry. And in verse 12 to 14, it says, uh, As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 29, For it is granted to you on behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So, the Philippian Christians would, would be fearing and trembling at who? If you were being persecuted, who would you fear and tremble over? You'd fear and tremble over the people persecuting you. You'd fear and tremble at the police knocking your door. You'd fear and tremble at your colleagues uh, reporting you or making fun of you or denying you the opportunity to work or your children the right to go to school or for your material possessions to be taken away or for you to be thrown in jail. That's what you would fear and tremble over. But Paul says, and God says through Paul instead, that who are they to fear and tremble over? They are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And why? Because in verse 9 to 11, we know that Jesus is God. We know that He is God right now. He has a name above every other name. And in the future, when He comes down, every knee will bow before Him and every tongue will acknowledge Him as God. So when you work out your, your, your salvation, you shouldn't work it out in terms of fearing the world but you should work it out in terms of fearing Jesus and fearing God and His judgment. And that's why when we look at this passage, when it applies to ourselves, we should not say, okay, we will only work out our salvation when it's convenient, when we fear the rebuke of other Christians around us, when we fear the rebuke of our Bible study members or, or our church members. But when we go and are living out in our workplaces or our schools, or our homes, because no one's watching when we don't fear them, then we just do what we want to do. No, instead, we should always see that whatever year it is, we must always work out our salvation with fear and trembling, in every context, and every time. So I remember talking to this Christian person, who was telling me that he couldn't do what God was telling him to do, or what the Bible was telling him to do, in his workplace. And he said, well, that's alright, you know, uh, he, just, he was saying to himself, because that's, that's different, that's outside of church. But my answer to him was to get another job. Because you are to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling in every context, not just within the church. Now, the third point um, that uh, I think really struck me as I was looking at this was, if we know that Jesus is going to come back again and every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord, then you must keep working out your salvation. You must keep living out your salvation. Even when you're tempted and you fall, you must always get up and keep living out your salvation. Because I think the temptation for us is, is that if we put ourselves in the Philippian shoes and as we look at our own lives, there is a sense where we can sometimes give up on certain sins or certain aspects in our lives and say, well, I will obey God in all these aspects, but in this one aspect, I will just, I will just stop working. I will just stop striving. I will stop working. And I will just give up on this one aspect. But again, if you look at this passage, there are no qualifications. There are no limitations. It is a complete an utter denial of self that God is looking for. And that in everything that we do, we must give it over to God and obey Him. There cannot be an area of our life where we accept sin and say, okay, we will tolerate sinful living and not working our salvation in this area of my life. Because if God has placed Jesus beside Him and He is 
the, high, the highest place, and He will come back, and we will acknowledge Him as God, then He will not tolerate that there's any area of our life where we do not obey Him. So I know uh, of a few people in different situations where, you know, they struggle. Say they struggle with pornography, and it leads to worse and worse things. And over time, they tolerate it and say, well, it's okay, I think. You know, I'll tolerate this area of my life. But then, in other areas, I'll try to obey. But you see, that's not working at our salvation. That's not striving. That's, that's actually giving up. And that's, that will not do. So, I think that uh, as we come to the end of this year, uh, I, oh, okay. Jerry, could you get those bookmarks and pass it up? Thanks. There's some bookmarks there. Uh, maybe Jen Yang can help them. Okay, so uh, anyway, for those of you who are new to this church, this is a tradition that we have. So we always give out bookmarks at the beginning of the year. Okay, so um, you're only allowed to take one, really. Sorry. Okay, so if you look at the bookmarks, basically, it's from another passage. Um, but it says the same thing. It says about how as children of God, we must live out our, uh, our calling in both truth and actions. Okay, so we, we shouldn't do it uh, just so that other people can see on Sunday, but in everything that we do in our actions and our truth, we must keep on working our salvation with fear and trembling. Alright, so uh, I hope you keep those cards and you hope it's a reminder to you of how you must continue to do that in your life. Okay, uh, don't worry about the marks. Let's move on to verse 14. Okay. In verse 14, it says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now, again, uh, the, the main verb or the, the instruction or commandment here, not, not a, a suggestion, right, is that they must do everything without arguing or grumbling. Now, the picture here is quite straightforward. It's, uh, it's a bit like, you know, when the government gives a new policy, there's murmuring on the ground, right? Muttering. Or uh, my, my, my kids were telling me, it's like, uh, you know, if you can remember back to your school days, and the principal has his announcement at assembly, and he says, okay, from now on, uh, people were not allowed to have mobile phones at home, uh, at school, right? They're all, everybody, okay? That's the sort of, that's, a, that's what is, 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 is in view here grumbling and arguing, murmuring and muttering. Now, it brings us back to uh, the context, I think. Uh, it reminds us of the Old Testament. Uh, I, I, you notice I haven't shown the LCDs, right? This is not a New Year resolution. It's just that, it's just that uh, for today, we only have uh, two main Bible references, so I thought, you know, it's good for you to flick the Bible once in a while. So if you go back with me to Exodus chapter 16, verse 6, Exodus chapter 16, verse 6. It's, it's the same idea that is being in view, that is called to view here in Philippians chapter, four, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. So turn me to Exodus. Okay. Exodus chapter 16, verse 6. Okay, it's very important you follow it. Alright. So it says here, Exodus chapter 16, verse 6, is the second book of the, uh, the Bible. Right. It says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he heard your grumbling against him. 
Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said. You will know that it is the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So the same picture is in view here in Philippians, sorry, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 because the, the Philippian Christians were grumbling, muttering, and they were bickering and they were discontent. But why were they grumbling and arguing? Well, I think that the context was that they were probably grumbling because they were suffering as Christians. They were probably grumbling because they were being exhorted to be humble and to love others and to serve others. So basically, they were grumbling and complaining about working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They were grumbling and arguing about obeying God. And they may have been grumbling against Paul. They may have been grumbling against the leaders he left behind. They may have been grumbling against one another. Now, I wonder whether we do the same thing. Because this is a commandment. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. So, I've spoken to some people about uh, not having premarital sex. And sometimes people grumble, right? They say, well, you know, I'm missing out. All my friends are doing it. Or, when I tell people that they shouldn't download things illegally... From the internet, they say, well, you know, why is, that, why is God wanting to deny me uh, these things? Or, if you tell people you shouldn't work in a certain way, then you say, why, why is God not wanting me to succeed in my work? But the grumbling and muttering is not so much against the person who's bringing the instruction from God, but against God himself. Now, uh, over the last a few weeks ago, we had this thing called the Lark Hill Camps. I don't know whether you know about this, but it's one of these camps which is run by many people in our church, together some other people from some other churches, which gets together Christian youth. Uh, and uh, they play games and they listen to talks and they basically learn from God's Word. They really grow in Christ. Anyway, I was helping out there and I managed to listen to one of the short talks by this guy called Jonathan Fletcher. And in, the, in this talk, he was sharing about how in England, he's from England, right? He's, an old, he's one of those old British men, okay? So, of the prior generation. This thing like Michael Caine, okay, in Batman. Alright? So, he was saying about how um, there's a woman, there was a woman in his congregation before who kept complaining and grumbling about him. So, he met up with this woman and as far as you could see, he wasn't doing anything wrong and she was basically complaining against the things that he, that he was doing that God wanted him to do. So, he told her and he warned her straight to her face and says, you know, I must warn you that if you keep this up, I greatly fear for your salvation because you're not muttering and murmuring against me but you're grumbling against God and that was a really dangerous thing to do. So here, this passage is saying, I think in a very similar way that the Philippian Christians and ourselves should not grumble and mutter when we are exhorted to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We should not mutter and murmur against obedience to God. I wonder whether we do that. Do you ever do that? The Bible tells you to do something or you learn something from the Bible study or you read something which tells you genuinely what God wants you to do, but you murmur and you grumble and you mutter against that. Because that's what the world does, isn't it? That's what the world does. I hope I don't get in trouble with the law society. But I was reading the newspaper a few uh, just last week about how the law society, which is made out of all the lawyers in Singapore, there was a murmuring and grumbling among them. Because uh, they, the leadership of the Law Society wanted to make it mandatory for them to provide free 
pro bono legal services to the community. And uh, there was lots of muttering and grumbling, and, uh, and in the end, they rejected the, the plan. And how many hours were, were they being asked to do, to give? 16 hours a year, which really is, I mean, think about it, that's only about like two days work, right? Or maybe for a lawyer, only one, right? And they were saying like, you know, why pick on the lawyers? Why not ask the doctors, they were saying. Uh, this is what I read from the newspaper, no? What about the rest of society? Why can't you make it mandatory for the rest of society to do it? Uh, why can't we give money instead? Some people said. Now, that's the way the world acts, isn't it? That's the world, way the world thinks. Uh, if you're asked to do something, something good and worthy, then you might grumble and mutter and be discontent. But how different we as Christians must act? Because as Christians, when we are told to serve, to love, to do what is right, to obey God, to work out our salvation, we must not grumble and mutter and, uh, and be discontent against God. And look at what it says there in verse 15 to 16, uh, at the end of verse 15. And then, if you do this, if you don't do everything without grumbling and arguing, then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly, or hold out to the word of life. See how different it is when I was thinking about uh, the law society, to, um, to the, the people who volunteered at Lark Hill. Uh, here you have teachers, here you have bankers, here you have people in IT who actually take days off their work to go and help teach young people the Bible, play games with them, sleep, rough it out, you know, maybe uh, have no hot water, okay? And I remember my dad, uh, I can't remember why my dad found out about this, oh, because my kids went there. And uh, my dad said, who are these people who help? And I said, oh, they're all these people, the teachers, you know, some of the teachers, some of them are, they work in banks, some of them do other things. And I said, then his question to me was, do they get paid? And I said, no, they don't get paid. Uh, and he said, well, why do they do it then? I said, well, because they feel it's the right thing to do, it's a good thing to do. See, so rather than grumbling, rather than arguing, God says that we should instead obey we should serve, we should love, we should sacrifice. And the last part actually links to this part. So in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, which is the third, the third main verb of this uh, passage, it says, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice of all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now you'd be really surprised that the main imperative or command instruction here is to be glad and rejoice with me. Now, what a strange thing to say, isn't it? Because Paul is suffering, he's in prison. The Philippian Christians are suffering, they may be thrown in prison. And he says, rejoice and be glad with me. Now what is he asking them to be glad and rejoice over? Now, the, the word here, glad and rejoice, is not try to be happy, try to smile a bit, uh, you know, think of the bright side of life, no. It means real joy and real gladness. But how are they, the Philippian Christians and Paul, to be glad and rejoice? Well, look at the passage carefully, right? It says that they are to be happy and glad because of the faith of the Philippians, isn't it? In verse 17. 
and because Paul did not run and labor in vain, they are to be glad because the whole church, because other people are being saved because of their service and of their sacrifice and of Paul's service and Paul's sacrifice. Now think that for that over that for a moment, okay? Are you happy? Are you glad? Do you rejoice that you are saved? That you are a child of God? That on the day when Jesus comes, you'll be saved and taken up to heaven? Does that make you happy? Well, I hope the answer is yes. But Paul goes even further in this passage, isn't it? He says, share the joy that I have, that because I have sacrificed and I have served, that you will be saved. And because of your faith, See, do you rejoice? Do you feel glad when you see your brothers and sisters working out their salvation with fear and trembling? Does it make you happy when you serve them and love them and they grow in their faith? Does it make you feel, you know, warm inside that when you, when you, when you, when you, when you help people among us that they will be saved? When Jesus comes. Because that's not something that we often see, isn't it? We, we don't see people happy when they see other Christians, other brothers and sisters grow in Christ. I think one of the worst emotions for Christians is uh, the emotion of... Um, okay, I'm gonna, I, I've mentioned this word to you. I'm going to see whether you remember it. Do you remember I taught you this word a long time ago called um, Schadenfreude? Okay, anyway. It basically is a very complicated German word. But what it means is you derive pleasure from the misfortune of other people. Okay, so when other people uh, do badly, you feel happy. Okay, I, I think it's a very Singaporean, Singaporean emotion, right? Okay, you know, you see other, other people do badly, you feel better, right? So, you know, uh, but that's not the way it must work, right, as Christians. We should never ever rejoice when we see other Christians, other brothers and sisters, stumble and fall. Okay, this is not the O and A levels where, oh, you did so badly, okay, it's a better chance for me to do better, right? No, this doesn't work that way, right? Okay? God doesn't work on the bell curve. Alright? But, but, but this is the opposite of that, isn't it? Because Paul is saying, as you serve, as you love, as you obey, as you work out your salvation, as you sacrifice, and you see other people growing in Christ, then he says, be glad and rejoice with me that these people's faith are growing. Now, one of the saddest things I experienced was I shared with a church pastor uh, the struggle of a theological classmate that I have, I had, uh, and uh, you know he was under a lot of struggle, a lot of pressure. This classmate that I used to have, and he may he may have dropped out of uh, you know doing ministry. This is not Singapore, by the way. Okay, so I just cleared it up. But this pastor didn't have any compassion or or sympathy for my classmate at all. In fact, he seemed almost, to me, like, happy that he would fall. And to me, that doesn't make sense, see, because that's so, so opposite to the, the attitude of Paul here. He is happy and rejoicing when he sees other people growing in their faith because of his service. And he wants other people to share that joy with him. But so often, as Christians, we rejoice when other people fall. We don't rejoice when other people do well especially in their Christian life. So as we come to the end of 2012, I think nothing really changes, is it? Because whether it's 2012 or the year, I don't know, 10, 12 AD or 30 AD or 40 AD, 
we are still in the same time as the Philippian Christians. Jesus was still up in heaven, at the right hand of God. He was still at the highest place, given the name above every name. And in the future, their future and our future, Jesus will come again and every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So given that reality, the consequence of our life must be that we will continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we will do everything without grumbling and arguing against one another, against God. That why is life so tough? Why must I do this? Why, why do you want to do this to, to make me, to make my life tough? And most of all as well, the surprising thing is we should be glad and rejoice as we serve our brothers and sisters and as we see them grow in faith. We should rejoice and be glad with them when they grow in faith. I remember uh, this uh, pastor Dick Lucas says, when the day the Lord comes, when Jesus comes, what is the most important thing on that day? To be saved in Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing, isn't it? And therefore, we should do all those things. Keep working out. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Be glad and rejoice when other people do well in their faith. So in conclusion, I want to share you this um, illustration which was shared with me yesterday. So the, we're going to have uh, this uh, pastor, David Cook, who's going to be preaching on Luke uh, chapter 10, I think, uh, to us in two Sundays' time. I've never met him, but I've heard that he's a good preacher and I've heard good things about him. He was the, he was the president of Sydney Missionary Bible College. And apparently he always uses this illustration over and over again. So I'm going to tell you this illustration, and if he comes and uses the same illustration, you know that uh, it was his illustration. Okay? So apparently he says that, you know, once in a while it's good to go home and have these green and red stickers, and you should put the green stickers on everything that will last when Jesus comes again, and put a red sticker on all the things that will not last when Jesus comes again. So when you go home, you know, like, okay, your LCD TV, what do you put there? A red sticker, right? Okay, your car, red sticker, uh, your... You know, your house, you can put a red sticker on the front door, uh, your uh, iPhone, red sticker, iPad, red sticker. And then, uh, obviously, when you put the green sticker on, okay, you see your child, your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband, you put a green sticker on them, okay? And then, obviously, you put a green sticker on yourself. So, if all those things are eternal and going to last, then the most important thing are these things, isn't it? for ourselves, for our children, our friends, our family, our relatives, that we must keep working out our salvation with fear and trembling. To not grumble and argue against God. And to rejoice and be glad when all these people keep growing in faith, because they will last. They will last when Jesus comes again. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, we truly pray that you will help us to see the reality of Jesus, that he was a baby, yes, he was, but he is no longer a baby, he is now in heaven at your right hand, he is at the highest place, he is given a name above every name, and that in the future which is ahead of us, it may be tomorrow, it may be next year, it may be a hundred years from now, maybe a thousand years from now, Jesus will come again in every need, whether in heaven, on earth, and under earth, will bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So help us to see that the most important thing for us today that we must be doing is to keep working our salvation with fear and trembling. 
not to fear the opinion of people or the attitude of friends, but to fear and tremble before the mighty and powerful Jesus. And dear Father, that we may not grumble and argue against one another or against doing the things that you want us to do, but instead to rejoice and be glad that as we serve and love one another, we can see each other's faith grow and all the more that we will be sure of our salvation when Jesus comes. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.